Good morning. A few more? Oh, that's better. <laughs> Great to be with you this morning. Um, you know, <clears throat> as we watched those pre-recorded services that we went through for as long as we did, they were okay. It kept us kind of going a little bit, but there felt something very wrong about that, didn't there? And it's just great to be together, and I look forward to the day when our whole church body can gather together as one again, and uh, that we can worship together. Uh, it's, it's been a challenge. I agree with Aaron, and by the way, thank you, worship team. Uh, Aaron and your team, you did a great job this morning, and, and those songs are so meaningful. Uh, I agree with Darren, Aaron this morning that it just seems like, yeah, there are ways to worship that don't include music, but there's something about music that touches our heart and our spirit and our soul and gets us into touch with God in ways that sometimes we can't do otherwise. And uh, so I am very, very grateful that uh, we have this opportunity to gather together and uh, to worship, to listen, to pray, and, and to fellowship. Um, now, I will tell you that this service is being recorded, and Darren let me, or Daryl let me know that I needed to make all my mistakes in the first go-around so that this time I'll get it right. You can laugh. This morning we're talking about the whole question of where our faith is at with respect to the Beatitudes and what do we yearn for. What is our, what's important to us in our lives? What are we striving for? I want to begin by reading uh, the, the Beatitudes with you. If you have your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 5. We're starting at the beginning of the chapter. And um, as you're doing that, let me pray. Father, we thank you again for just the joy that we get from being together as fellow believers we thank you that we can worship together and we thank you that we can encourage one another and, and in our faith we can journey with one another. And Lord, as we are uh, working through the Beatitudes and looking at them, we see that there can be so much more. And uh, the question really be becomes, are we satisfied? And so, Father, just uh, bless our time, bless the words, anoint them, Father, so that our hearts will be touched by you. We ask in Jesus' name. And so Matthew chapter 5 reads, Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. 
So for the past three weeks, Daryl has gone through the first of the three Beatitudes, uh, which consider our, our, our own relationship to God. And it, just as a way of really quick recap, I want to just uh, express them uh, maybe in a little bit different way, but don't blink or you're going to miss what I say. Okay, that could be really quick. To be poor in spirit is to recognize your own spiritual bankruptcy. To mourn is to have a genuine sorrow for our sin and the sins of others. To be meek is tied closely with this word humility and is related to having a submitted yielding of our will to God. These elements begin the journey of faith. One cannot have faith without recognizing their need for their dependence on God through Jesus Christ and of their need to be saved from themselves, that is, from their own sin. There's no other starting place. This is where we have to begin. If we want to have a walk with the Lord, we have to recognize our dependence on Him, and we need to recognize just how, I'll use the word, spiritually bankrupt we are as people. And, and while we may have this desire in us, this yearning in us, that... that longs for more, we sometimes don't have a very good way of being able to follow through with that. So this is our starting place. After this starting place, there must be a conscious submitting of the will to God to do those things that please Him. And, and to be able to do that, we have to want to. We have to know what those things are and, and we have to follow through with those things. And we need to turn away from those things that cause us to continue to sin and then to incorporate into our lives the, those things that cause us to grow in our relationship with God. It is here that we begin to see this, this whole new value, if you will, this perspective that will begin to take place in our lives as, as we begin to turn our heart to doing those things that please God. And so we find in Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, we are encouraged this way. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living, holy, and pleasing sacrifice to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Listen, this, this is just something that we say we do. We do this by an act of worship that we are going to turn ourselves over, that we are going to submit our wills to God. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, his pleasing, and his perfect will. And it's at this point that the urge to know God better begins to formulate in the mind and the heart. <clears throat> we begin to see that the next beatitude has implications for us only as we grasp those first three. And indeed, it's only as we, we take in those and this one that the Sermon on the Mount, which includes all of chapter 5 through 7, begins to take on significance for us. It's more than just, here's some good ideas, try them out. This is about how do we grow in our faith. So this morning I want to talk about the fourth beatitude, which is blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And I want to look at these three points that will help us understand what that means 
and they are the transforming nature of faith, the convicting nature of faith, and the consuming nature of faith. So first, the transforming nature of faith. What does it mean to be transformed? Now, how many of you have watched any of the Transformer movies? Come on, I know some of you have. Don't be shy. Yeah, okay. Yeah, what happens? They, you, you see this thing, whatever it is. I've never watched them, so I don't know. Okay, I, just, I have grandchildren. They've watched them, and they think they're great. But you see this thing that becomes something else, right? And that something else does things that the other one couldn't do. <laughs> and so back and forth, right? It, it becomes the, 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 the robot, and then it becomes the other thing, and back and forth and back and forth. I, the reason I say all of this is because this is what our faith can look like. Right? You know, we can be one thing. And then, and then something happens and we have this great desire to be something else. And, and that works for a while. But then we, we go back and we, we slip back and forth in, in our relationship with God. And so, you know, this, this whole idea of being transformed, it means that something has changed. And it means for us that we are made new to become something that we have not been, not something that we're going back to, but something that we have changed into. Second Corinthians 5.17 speaks about people of faith as being a new creation in Christ. Okay, not, not, not that we can go back again, because now that life is gone, and what we are now is new, and it belongs to Christ. And so it's no surprise then, uh, and I'll step back a second and say, you know, you remember Nicodemus came to Jesus and said, what must I do to inherit you know, eternal life? What did Jesus say to him? Somebody. You must be born again. Right? That's, that's new creation. That's new life. Right? And if, you're, if your old self has gone away, it means that you're left with this new self this new person that you are. And so it's no surprise then that Jesus talks about the need for food and drink as being part of the striving for righteousness. Because food and water are necessities for life, right? What happens when you stop eating and drinking? You die, sure. Right, we know that. It's not different in our faith. It's not different in our faith. But let me say this. This eating and drinking, this hungering and thirsting that it's talking about is not just this thing of, oh, I feel hungry. I'm going to grab a bite to eat. Or I feel thirsty. I should get a drink. No. The intention of this thinking is having to eat and drink has an intensity to it. And it's more like an unquenchable craving, an insatiable thirst and desire, a feeling that you just can't get enough. You ever felt that way when you're sitting at the table? Anybody? Anybody that wants to admit it? <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> Got at least one. This is the kind of longing Jesus is talking about when he's describing what our desire for righteousness should look like. So what is righteousness? We find that in Scripture there's a dual nature to righteousness. And much like sanctification, it has both a crisis and a process. It begins at a point, and then as you continue to grow in your faith, it progresses and you get more and more and more and more to be like Christ. 
It's related to man in his conformity to God's holiness. Scripture explains righteousness as our position before God. And while we are guilty of transgressing God's law, because of faith in Jesus Christ, we are made holy. So the first aspect of what we, is what we call imputed righteousness, okay? Which is a righteousness given to us, given to us, okay? Nothing we do about this. It's given to us because of our faith in Jesus Christ. It refers to the fact that our guilt is washed away and we are declared holy before God. This is a legal thing that happens, okay? We call it being forgiven, we are forgiven by God. And we stand before him clean and essentially unguilty. He takes that, the price is paid. We can't earn this status. All our human efforts can never wash away sin, Jeremiah 2 says. And Psalm 40 verse 6 says, no amount of sacrifice can wipe out human guilt. And Psalm 49, 7 says, No human can ever atone for the sins of himself or his brother. This is something that God does for us. As far as man is concerned, the situation is entirely hopeless. And into this hopeless situation came Jesus. To rescue us when everything else failed. You ever feel like you needed to be rescued? You ever felt like you failed so bad that nobody would trust you again? Jesus comes along and says, you know what? You failed. You need rescuing. Here am I. Take me, accept me, trust in me, and God will accept you for who you are. The rescue was actuated when Jesus came to pay the penalty for, for those of us all of us who are guilty, so that we would be free from that guilt. It is faith in the sacrifice of the living Christ that begins this transformation that takes place within us. And it moves us from unrighteous to righteous, from unholy to holy. How much have we become conformed to the image of Christ? This is the question that we need to be asking ourselves. When we say, well, I, I know I'm a believer, I accept Christ as my Savior, but how far along the journey am I? Well, you can ask yourself that simple question. How much have I changed? Did my life change when I came to faith in Jesus? And does it continue to change? How much does our conduct reflect the values of the kingdom of heaven? How much do we even want to live that life that Paul talked about, um, the life worthy of the calling that you have received? See, the transformation that takes place in us moves us away from that which we were to that which we can be through our faith in Jesus. This is the transforming nature of faith. The second is the convicting nature of faith. Now, I don't use this word convicting as to judge and to find guilty, okay? We have judges and we have courts of law who do that, and God does that. You know, God judges people and he finds them guilty or innocent dependent on their faith in Christ. But what I'm talking about here in the convicting nature of our faith is the sense that the prompting of the Holy Spirit is showing us how our faith needs improvement, growth, and maturity. 
That's this convicting nature that I'm talking about. Our faith continues to call us ever deeper into a relationship with God. As it does, we're confronted with our own inadequacies. And as these inadequacies and convictions begin to come to light, we are forced into a decision-making process. We have to make a choice. Do I want to follow God's path, or do I want to follow mine? Ultimately, the question is, what does my life look like? Do we see ourselves in light of how the world determines what is good or bad, acceptable, unacceptable, unloving, loving, etc., etc.? And it would be normal for us to do that. But here's the problem. And David says it very nicely in Psalm chapter 19, 12. Who can discern their own errors? What this is really saying to us is that we're, we're incapable of seeing our own failures and weaknesses. We don't have that ability. We think we're okay, and the world will tell us we're okay, and the world will tell us that no one can judge you or the way you act or the way you think or the way you live. If I have to be careful where I go with this. Let me just say this. The world's values are not our values. And it is not the world who judges you. The better and intended question is, why does my life look like, what does my life look like to God? And it's is here that we must decide if we really want to know the answer to that question. The convicting nature of our faith is about how we ought to live our faith out and is best understood by the second aspect of righteousness, which is imparted righteousness. So the first was imputed, that which God does for us. The second is imparted, that which the Holy Spirit works in our lives, the changes that he brings to play. And it goes beyond our legal status to consider our ethical conduct. That is, what have I learned? What does my conduct look like? How much has my faith grown? And we need to understand that, that, and I think we do understand, Scripture teaches very clearly that we can never earn our salvation and we can never gain it through good works. But the other side of that coin is, it's just as impossible for a justified person to live without doing good works. Some of these people are hearing this for the second time. I'm not sure whether it sounds better or worse. Um, <laughs> But I'm, I'm still getting nods, so it can't be too bad. But this whole argument about good works saving us, or whether it's faith that saves us, this is the argument that James is making in chapter 2, when he talks about, you know, show me your faith, your, you know, show me your faith without works, and I will show you mine with my works. Right? It, 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 we're intended... That, that when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, our lives will reflect that in our actions, how we think, how we talk, how we, how, how we just display our lives. How we live our Christian faith in real life circumstances says much about our gr- growth towards righteousness. How do we allow our faith to impact our responses in the here and now? In this building, outside of this building, where you work, when you drive, just everything that happens to us. 
do I like how that treated, that I treated that person who offended me? What did I say to them? How harsh was I? Do I like how I acted when somebody called me out? Was I defensive? Was I argumentative? Was I just totally writing them off because I don't want to hear what they have to say? Is it okay to be a bully? Is it okay to be selfish? Is it okay to be mean and mean-spirited? Is it okay to lose control and to speak hardly, harshly, and to be undisciplined? Is this okay for us? Is that what God calls us to? Is that what Jesus calls us to? He has a better way for us, doesn't he? What would it look like to you if God suddenly decided, or if you suddenly decided to allow God to show you all those things that you've done wrong in your life? Would it be a little overwhelming? Would we be crushed by the weight of it? Thankfully, like the potter at the wheel, God molds us slowly and gently into vessels he wants us to become and doesn't demand of us that we make it all happen right now. So we see that convicting work of our faith embraces both the forensic and the ethical. The work done in us by the Holy Spirit points us to those things that need to change. And as we respond, we obtain righteousness of inner condition and outward conduct. In fact, the more we allow that work to be done, the more we will want it to be done because it feels good. We feel good when we see God working in our lives and when we allow him to do those things that enable us to look more like him. It just feels good. It feels right. And we want more of it. And what's the, this is that hungering and thirsting that Jesus is talking about. Right? And what's the result of this hungering and thirsting? We are told we will be filled. Expressed in, an, in another way, we could say that we will be satisfied. That's what happens when we eat and drink, right? Go to the restaurant, order your 30-ounce steak, get the biggest potato you can find, <laughs> and eat. And some of us just don't walk away, do we? <laughs> some of us just keep eating. But you know what? When we get filled like that spiritually, and, and when these things happen, we can't get enough. The very knowledge that indeed you have a yearning for this righteousness is an indication that something right is happening in your life. And in that, there is a sense of satisfaction. Not that you have attained, because we won't. Because we're all on a journey. But the fact that you're striving for it. See, this is the convicting nature of our faith. And then the third is the consuming nature of our faith. And here's the thing, just because you have a yearning doesn't mean it will happen. Just like hungry, being hungry or thirsty, you will never be satisfied until you do something about it. You won't be not hungry unless you go get something to eat, right? You won't be not thirsty unless you get a drink. That's just the way it is. You must eat, you must drink. 
The question becomes, how interested are you in pursuing it? How much are you prepared to commit to the process? There are many things in life that allow us to choose how much energy we want to invest in them. And Judy and I have spent many hours up in Kananaskis, hiking the trails here and there. Some of those trails require not very much from us, flat, lovely, great, you know, just wander around. Other trails require a lot more. Judy and I went up Mount Indefatigable. Anybody else say that? No, I didn't ask if you've been there. I'm asking if you can say it. <laughs> so you've been there. You, anybody else? What was that hike like for you? <laughs> it's very hard, isn't it? It demands just about everything you get just to get to the lookout. But when you get to the lookout, then what? It's all worth it, isn't it? That view, it's, it's incredible. It's incredible. The question is, why do we expend that kind of effort to reach those places? Isn't it because we know that once we get to the destination, we will be rewarded with that view? That's why we do them. All of life is about what we are willing to do to reach our goals. You've heard people say, I wanted it so badly I could taste it. Anybody here said that? Oh, come on. Not even one of you? Okay, I'll rephrase. Any of you heard that saying before? Okay, some of you. Okay, I feel better. <clears throat> Here's my next question. Have you ever wanted something so badly that you did whatever it took to get it? Our faith, our faith journey is not different. The parables in Matthew 13, which tell us about the man who found the, the treasure hidden in the field, and it tells us about the man who found the pearl of great worth. What did they both do? They both went and sold everything they had so that they could get their hands on that treasure and that pearl. What motivated these men to do that? Why would you sell everything you had just to get your hands on one thing? Wasn't it that they recognized incredible value in what they had found? Jesus told these parables so that people would understand that our faith has that kind of value. And he wants us to grasp that the value of our faith is worth all that we have so that we can take hold of all that he has for us. But it demands that we make a deliberate choice to commit ourselves to following that path in life. Maturing in faith will not happen just because you want it to be so. It takes effort. It takes discipline. It takes desire. Our motivation is that we, that we understand that God wants to mold us into that which can be of service to him and into what can bring him glory. Our motivation, that thing that has to consume us, is that God is worthy of praise and worship. And we can only worship and praise what we hold in the highest esteem. That's the consuming nature of our faith. When we get there, when we're moving in that direction, things change. The way we look at our faith, the way we look at the way we live, it changes. I was reading a blog that I follow, and the subject of the day on that day was, if God, then why? The thesis reflects on the idea that we will all encounter trials of many kinds, which James tells us. But our ability to overcome 
is dependent on, how our, on our perspective of God. Do we believe that God is in control of the minutest things that happen in our life and the apparent happen chance? I'll give you a definition of that word, okay. That means the completely unplanned for things. Do we believe that God is in control of those things in our lives? The, the author goes on to say that faced with suffering and misfortune, we always find ourselves asking questions. If God is good, why is my health failing? If God is great, why, why is my wealth failing? If God is, why am I not? You see, though we may lose our health and our wealth, we shouldn't be surprised by this. We should expect them to fail. Only God will not fail. Only God is God. Ultimately, his conclusion speaks of the normal view that we have and that we tend to emphasize, which is God's sovereignty and power. What he is seeking and what he wants us to understand is that he wants to see God's divine stability, his divine reality, and his divine faithfulness. When all else fails, God is. The distinction is somewhat subtle because he's not trying to diminish the theological perspective of God's nature, but he wants us to go forward to include the personal understanding that God is far more than an ideological entity. He is personally interested in each one of us. You see all this hair on my head? No, not much. There used to be a lot there. And God knew all of them. And he watched them all fall out and said, it's okay. You're still one of mine. And I guess I don't expect it's ever going to come back. But here's the thing. He knows my name. He knows your name. Knows your name. He knows everything about you sitting here right now in this room. And he loves you just the same. This leads me to this question. If this is the God we say we believe in, the God who will not fail, the God who is aware of every event of our lives, the God who says, I want you to be my children in the deepest sense of the word, why are we so reluctant to go after him and that righteousness that he calls us to? How satisfied are you with your faith experience? Have you ever thought, I was expecting it to be more than this? I thought there would be more. Do you wish that something could change so that your faith journey was vibrant and alive and meaningful? Good for you. I hope you feel that more. I hope it overflows in your life. You see, it's a good sign that you yearn for your faith to become more vital in your life. But now I say this. That's how you feel? Go after it. Go after it. It will not just happen. To get it, you must invest time and effort in exploring what it can be. Only then will you begin to understand what Jesus said when he taught, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be filled. Do you want to be filled? There's no time like right now to begin that deeper journey. Let's pray together.
Father, we sit here right now, some of, us, some of us further along the journey than others, some of us who have been striving for long times and others who are just beginning that journey. And we read your word, we hear what it says to us, and some days we feel like it's so many words, and other days we feel like, can this be real? And other days we feel like, I want this. How does it happen? Father, we pray this morning that your blessing would flow upon us, that your Holy Spirit would come upon us, and that by your Spirit you would show us those things in our lives that need to change. You would motivate us to want it. You would allow us to reach for it and to grab for it and to go for it and do all that we need to do to make that happen in our lives. And Father, as we go from this place today, we ask that, that you would just use all that you're doing in our lives to be a witness to people that there's more to our faith than just being people who make mistakes, which is what they see so often, but that we have a God who looks upon us and hears our, our confession and says, I forgive you, let's get going again. Let's start again today. And so, Father, go with us. Use us and bless us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for coming this morning. You're dismissed.